Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Together, are we Christian? We've acknowledged that the word has become associated with a lot of bad behaviors, and consequently the word has become tainted. But we've also acknowledged that there is a richness in the heritage. And so that richness argues for rehabilitating the word, rehabilitating the ancient wisdom, rehabilitating the ancient practices, because a tradition becomes a tradition because there's something helpful in it, because there's something meaningful in it. And that richness then becomes worth discovering. We started the lesson outlining this academic understanding, a stage theory, it's called Fowler's Stages of Faith, which by the way, several of you said you're going to read. It's kind of an academic book. I think you can get as much reading about it as you can reading the actual book. If you like academic kind of stuff, read the book, but if not, you can go online. Those six stages will be outlined very nicely there. So he does, he outlines the spiritual journey in six steps, each one matched to a human developmental stage. So there is a literal spirituality when we need the concrete. There is a tribal spirituality when we are focused on belonging and being connected to other people. Then there is a profound shift from an inherited uh, spirituality to direct encounter spirituality. We've used the the phrase from secondhand to firsthand spirituality. Well, there's a reason that we started there on this lesson when are we Christian? We started there because when we use that word Christian, when we ask if we are, we're referring to one part of this journey. The question means one thing at one part of the journey, and it means something different in another part of the journey. So, Uh, Are we Christian is really a question of are we institutional Christians? Are we those mystical Christians? Or are we at the stage four burn the whole thing down Christians? What are we? So very different definitions, very different descriptions at the different parts of the journey. Well, if you missed that part, you can have a listen online. But this part of the lesson we're asking, do we believe in God? Because that seems like a thing that Christian people do. But that question also depends on which God you're talking about. Are you talking about the God of the concrete part of the journey? Or are you talking about the God of the more ethereal part of the journey? Or are you talking about the God of the burn the whole thing down part of the journey? Because those gods as well are different depending on where you are on the journey at any given time. So last week I told a story about a 12-year-old girl being forced by a terrible diagnosis into a transition from one way of viewing God to another that happened earlier than would be developmentally indicated. Well, this week, I'd like us to think a little bit more about that, that process of moving from one way of imagining God to another way of imagining God. Now, a quick note that I'm going to reinforce when we get to the end. There's no qualitative betterness between the images of God we use. Our Father who art in heaven is no better and no worse than God as song, as we talked about last week. 
Our images of God are always incomplete. Our images of God are always inadequate. But here's what they are. Those images of God are tools. They're tools that we employ in order to build lives of meaning. They are tools that we employ in order to build lives of virtue and of character, build lives that are able to access the interior light that we all carry within. We never capture the divine in any thought that we can think. Our God images are always inadequate, but they are very helpful tools. So when you need a screwdriver image of God, a screwdriver image of God is the very best possible tool at that moment. But when you need a saw image of God, then you need a saw image of God, and a screwdriver image of God will not be helpful at all. So, again, no qualitative betterness, but they are different. In different contexts, in different times, we need different tools. And we need to keep that in mind, even as we begin this discussion, because when we do not keep that in mind, it is easy to fall prey to the temptation to look down on or to feel looked down on. And the spiritual journey is just not like that. Carpenters don't look down on one another for using a saw or using a screwdriver. No, we use the tool we need when we need it. So comparing and contrasting my God, your God, not helpful. Looking down upon, not helpful. Feeling looked down upon, not helpful. The spiritual journey is just not that way. All right, so when we get to the end, we're going to ask some questions. We're going to talk about them together, hear what they are to give you some time to be thinking about them in advance. You're going to hear several non-person ways to imagine God. Wind and fire, river, soil, um, gravity, now here's the question, what happens inside of you, maybe it's already happened, or maybe you can just imagine that it might happen, if you shift from whatever image of God to a non-person image of God. If that becomes your working model, what happens in you? What has happened in you? What does happen when you imagine it? Do you feel the resistance, or do you feel puzzled, or do you feel latitude now, or do you feel uh, awkward? What is your experience? And then, if you did that, or when you did that, did you gain? Did you lose? What happens? What happened? All right, so be thinking as the lesson goes on. And there is something going on with this air conditioner. Um, does anybody, I got the key, anybody know how to unlock it? All right, so here it is. Go straight down. Uh, here, don't lose the key. It's the only one I've got. And then we are really screwed. So you go right straight down the hall, unlock, put it up to 73, and then you got to go adjust the time on the left. So keep it at 73 until we finish. All right. So, again, our images of God, tools. That's all they are. Tools that we employ to point us to, and this is critical, to point us to experience. Now, the kind of experience that our images of God point us to are really profound, deep, often moving experiences. Experiences that go deeply enough that when we try to describe them, we end up stumbling for words like touching the untouchable or hearing the unhearable, that kind of very difficult to access and contain experience. Sometimes it's shaped in the experience of awe, 
Other times we get a glimpse of something, and when we glimpse it, we know that it's more than just the stuff I see. You've heard the expression, more than the sum of the parts. And this kind of experience that our images of God point us toward is elusive, hard to pin down, hard to describe. But if we're paying attention, those moments, those glimpses are not that uncommon. We see the same sky that we've seen many, many times before, but this time it catches us. And this time it's more than clouds and more than sun. It awakens us. We see sparkles coming off of a lake. We've seen it before, but this time it catches us and we see more than water and light. We see someone's kindness and it catches us. Or we have a connection that we make in our minds. Uh, we see, we have an insight, we have an epiphany. Or a breakthrough in our understanding of another person. Or a breakthrough in our capacity for compassion for another person. And we get a glimpse of something and that something is somehow more. And our images of God, did I mention, again, tools, those images help us digest those glimpses when we have them. They give us context for the glimpses. They give us, they assign meaning to the glimpses. But they also draw us into further and deeper glimpses. And they help us integrate the implications of those glimpses when they happen into the lives that we're living each day. They give us a framework. They give us an understanding. They give us context. And they give us meaning. So our images of God are actually pretty important. What they also do is they help us move through this process that we've been talking about. Our images of God, they morph over time, they change over time, and they give us context and meaning, like I just said, but they also act like a magnetic pull, drawing us forward on the journey, drawing us to the center, drawing us to firsthand encounter. So as we are walking this journey over time, one image will quite naturally just evolve into the next. And if they help us make meaning in this part of the journey, then they morph and they change, and now we make meaning in this part of the journey, and we keep that process going as we move forward, moving to that mystical center we talked about last time. Now again, all that process will happen quite naturally unless... We get stuck, and we have. As a tradition, we've gotten stuck. We've gotten stuck because we've given one particular image of God more than tool status. We've given it the way it is status. And that image is the person image. So if you've ever studied Christian theology, you might have heard this term, one God, three persons. Tell me if you've ever heard that. Anybody heard that? <laughs> My goodness, you are theologized people. <laughs> it's a very old formula. It goes all the way back to the first council of bishops that happened in the 300s. There was at that time a pretty heated controversy going on in the Roman Empire, and it was actually threatening to split the empire, east and west. The West was holding one view of the nature of things, in particular the nature of God, the nature of human beings, and the nature of Jesus. The East had another image in their minds of the way things are. And so the emperor gathered them in Nicaea, which is now modern-day Turkey, and he gave them a mandate. Straighten this out, boys. Come to an agreement. 
Then he went and put his thumb on the scale so that they would come to the agreement that he wanted them to come to. Because he wanted them to come to the agreement that would localize power in the West where he happened to live. So that he could be the emperor who ruled over the whole thing and he wouldn't have to worry about Constantine and all those people over in the East. So sure enough, the bishops decided what the emperor wanted them to decide. And then the empire did stay united and the locus, the focus of power stayed in the West until it didn't anymore 600 years later. But here's the thing, what they were fighting about and the content of that controversy is less important to us in this lesson than what happens after heated conflicts like that one. Because when there's been a heated conflict with dire consequences possible, splitting the empire, killing people because we're splitting the empire, when dire consequences are on the line and then the conflict is resolved, the victors then tell the story of the winning position with a great deal of zeal, a great deal of energy and focus. And that phrase, one God, three persons, wasn't particularly consistent with our spiritual heritage because God cannot be reduced to any thought that we can think, even the thought of person. But it was the language that made it into the document at the end of that first council, and it was the language that put the rebels in their place, and it was the language that gave them the boot. So people pick up a book and read theology today. And what they are reading is that post-conflict, high-energy, defend-the-faith formulation, one God, three persons. That's the kind of thing that happens following life-or-death conflicts. And when we read that formulation this many years later, and we do so realizing that there are many who have gone, there are many who have gone before us who have read that formulation, we can't help but think, ah, that must be the way it is. God must be person because Council of Nicaea said it, because theologians have theologized it, because bishops have bishoped it, and preachers have preached it, and publishers have published it. God must be person. It's been in the water that we drink. It's been in the air that we breathe for a very long time. Person God acts like a person has a mind like a person, has emotional feelings like a person, has friends and enemies, has likes and dislikes like a person. And we've defended that formulation for so long, we don't even see the profound disconnect between our core story that the divine cannot be contained in any image we think and the fervor with which we teach one another and insist on one another that you can contain God in the image of a person, usually male, usually old, probably white. <laughs> so it's silly, but it gets into our guts. And when that silliness does get into our guts, we thwart the natural progression from image of God to image of God to image of God to image of God, each one drawing us into the next. And we end up throwing away a screwdriver or a saw because we don't see how that could possibly be an appropriate tool. And when we throw them away, we're throwing away stuff we're going to need. 
for making meaning. We need other metaphors for God, for growing and developing. We need other metaphors to be moving forward on our spiritual journeys. We need those other metaphors. So again, the journey from secondhand to firsthand spirituality uh, always been a plot line in our spiritual tradition. Even as other plot lines have kind of come to the front, uh, like selling out to the highest bidder in order to get power and prestige, using religion as command and control, uh, even as those other plot lines have been part of the losing our way, part of our heritage as well, there's always been a place that we go, sometimes to the desert, other times to the outskirts of the empire, we're no longer pushed back into conformity, often in cloistered communities. We've always gone to a place to practice a spiritual journey that carries us from secondhand encounter to firsthand encounter. And this little book was written from one of those places. It was written by an anonymous monk in medieval England sometime in the 14th century. And it's a spiritual guide for those who are losing the person image of God and who are transitioning to another image of God, a non-specific image of God. It's instruction for letting go. It's instruction for what's on the other side of letting go. It's instru instruction for surrendering the ego as the dominant tool that we use in our spiritual lives. Because we use our ego, we use our thoughts, and we use our will, and we, we use our devotion, we use our commitment, we use those tools. And this is instruction for finding another set of tools that we use when we have another image of God. We depend less on our belief system. We, spend le we uh, depend less on our will, our intention, and we begin to this little book gives us help on uh, embracing the idea of an uncertain divine, an undogma religion, an unknowing. So it's instruction for people who get stuck with the person God uh, and are able to then move in transition to the unknown God and the unknowable God. And ultimately becomes instructions in the ways of silence the ways of meditation, the ways of contemplation. Apophatic is what our tradition calls that side of the spiritual journey. Less doing and less thinking and less believing and more being present, being attentive, being listeners. It becomes instruction in seeking the divine, not in our confident dependence upon our concrete images and the doctrines that formulate around those concrete images, but instead seeks the unknowable unknown and does so in silence. So again, always been part of our tradition. There has always been a spirituality for a different image of God, for the unknown, for the unknowable God. And this becomes then a tool that we can pick up for our spiritual journeys. And when we pick this particular tool up, it points us to a divine reality located somewhere very different. We used to have a divine located far away in a distant place, not here. But with this image of God, we begin to find the divine not separate from us, 
not outside of us, not far away on a throne in heaven, but in us, in our very deepest selves, the divine center, we call it. So these, this little book becomes part of the instruction curriculum in our tradition for how to make use of the tool of the unknowable divine that is in us. So this monk and his part of the tradition imagined the divine as a presence in us, but also in everyone, friend and enemy alike, people who follow our religion, people who don't follow our religion. The divine is in me, and the divine is in everyone. But more than that, the divine is in everything, every rock and every tree, every ocean. The divine is the substrate in which all is. So this image of the divine as a pulsing presence at the center of all that is, that's really fuzzy. <laughs> that is really hard to pin down. It is really hard to describe that with any accuracy, with any certainty. But when we're talking about our images of God, let's keep in mind that we're not even after certainty. Because we have realized along the way in our tradition that all we ever have are imperfect, incomplete ways of imagining the divine. So what we're doing is we're looking for tools that allow us to function in and make meaning of the divine when we're not after certitude. Now we're looking for a screwdriver because we've been working with a saw for a long, long time. Now we need a screwdriver. And in this image of the divine, with all of its fuzziness and all of its impreciseness, words like central organizing reality or breath of the divine or animating force of, at the center of all that is, that is really fuzzy. So we are casting around for words to try and give some meaning to that. And when we do, we stumble onto tools that become very helpful. Ways of imagining the divine that become very helpful. Now, before I even mention what they are, here's the thing about these tools, these ways of imagining God. Here's what they are not. They are not God. And they are not right. They are not correct. They're not even close to complete. They're just tools. Tools that point us toward experience. It is no more accurate to say carriers of divine breath than it is to say our Father who art in heaven. Neither is right but both are valuable. When you need a saw, you need a saw. When you need a screwdriver, you need a screwdriver. Now here's what's happened through the centuries. When people have made this shift into God as the unknowable unknown, non-person images of God begin to emerge. And when they do, something begins to happen to us. When we start to work with these tools, something happens generation after generation to those who make this transition in their image of God. It is the experience of becoming. When we start to imagine the divine at the center of who we are, in us, the inner presence that animates our very being, we often experience something that those who've gone before us compare to being carried by the wind. Divine wind blows and we are carried on it. I mentioned earlier in the lesson how when we make these transitions in our spiritual lives, in our spiritual journey, one of the, 
marked elements of that transition is the shift from doing love to being love. In the long history of our, trans, of our tradition, when people have made this transition to the indwelling presence, a way of thinking about God, what they often experience is an interior presence at the center of who they are. And that interior presence moves them, carries them. They begin to feel the connection to that inner divine reality, realizing that they don't have to put on love using the power of our ego tools, but they can become love by accessing this deep rhythm that is within every one of us. And consequently, they don't do love because it's the right thing to do. They do love because it is in them and it becomes them. Work with that image of the divine at the center of who we are. As we've said it so many times, we're made of the same stuff God is made of. Work with that image and we start to sense, we start to experience being able to draw from that interior presence within us. One of the great gifts that the Pentecostal tradition has given to the Christian church is the sense that the divine is a very real presence within each of us. And that interior presence begins to pull us forward, take us through shift after shift after shift. Very difficult to see it from the outside looking in, but when you're inside, the shift is quite profound. Ah, this is what those words mean. I'm a carrier of the inner divine. Ah, this is what we're talking about. I have within me the breath of the divine. Ah, this is what it means when they say, I have love within me, courage within me, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, that those are in me because I have the fruit of the spirit growing within me because I have the divine at the very center of who I am. Ah, this is what all those fuzzy words meant. They're rooted in experience people grappling with words to try and talk about something that happened to them. And when we try, always incomplete, always imperfect, to talk about a thing that happens to us, we cast around for new ways of talking about the divine. So that's when we talk about God as soil, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. We are planted in the divine. We draw nourishment from the divine. We can no more be removed from the divine and still be than we can, than a tree can. We, we are there. It is there. We are part of that connectedness. We talk about the divine as gravity. It's a pull that, we move, that moves us in a direction toward greater inclusion, greater acceptance, and greater love, and greater engagement. And we can resist that gravitational pull. We do it all the time but it is there and it is always pulling us. We talk about God as fire. We approach and we are warmed. We resist and we remain cold. We talk about God as river. We can stand on the bank and try and chart it, try and understand it, or we can jump in and we can be carried with it where it is going. So the question, are we Christian? The question, do we believe in God? When our tradition is at its best, we humbly acknowledge that whatever our current concept of God is, it is provisional at best. When we are at our best, when we, we are at our best, when we allow our God images to evolve naturally, the old ones to die away and the new ones to emerge. You should also know that that can be a very difficult process. 
Because if you have had beautiful, meaningful experiences when you were functioning with one way of imagining God, it can be very difficult to let go of that way of imagining God because the beautiful experience was so intertwined with it. So it can be very difficult to let go of our precious images of God. I had very important and very meaningful experiences when my main image of God was a person God. I graduated from God as a coach trying to get the best behavior out of me. I graduated to God as king. I graduated to, I had several images of God and they were all person images of God and they were very beautiful and very meaningful. And when it was time to move from the person images of God, it was very difficult because those were beautiful experiences. And it feels like we lose something precious. But again, our tradition is at its best when we recognize that there are always going to be new ways to imagine the divine. There are always going to be new ways to imagine that will point us to to new levels of experience of the divine. So, let me reiterate the point we began with. Let us not be smug. (laughs) This spiritual journey is just not like that. Let us not look down on others or feel intimidated by others because this spiritual journey just isn't like that. On Mondays, I help my grandson with his reading homework after school. And here's something that you might not be surprised. I'm a better reader than he is. (laughs) I'm a lot better than he is. But here's what you should also know. I don't even feel this much smugness about the fact that I'm a better reader than he is because the reading journey just isn't like that. The reading journey isn't that way and neither is the spiritual journey. It's a 10,000 mile journey and if we are on mile six and somebody else is on mile seven, that is hardly a reason to be looking down on or to be intimidated by. That's just not that kind of territory. The journey is just not like that. And furthermore, even if it was, even if we could feel superior because we are on mile seven and someone else is on mile six, here's the thing. The further you go on this journey, the impulse to comparison and to contrast just begins to fall away. The very nature of the journey is that we're not about the comparison and contrast. The further you go into it, the more you realize you don't need to do that because that's some kind of a tool that we use for bolstering up an ego that we're actually seeing deconstruct. So there becomes less looking down on or intimidated by going on. So should the impulse to condescend come up when you see other christians making a great deal of noise and they are making a great deal of noise about how they are living their lives and doing the thing according to their god or their image or the way that they imagine and you feel condescending or you feel rejecting of here's what we do we breathe and we let go that's why we meditate It helps us see and notice our unhelpful thought habits when they kick in. It helps us see and notice our unhealthy emotional reactions when we see and when we observe and when we want to judge and we want to criticize and we want to feel smug and we want to feel superior and we want to debase them so that we can elevate ourselves. We meditate so we can let all that shit go. We breathe, we let go. We breathe, and we let go. 
And in so doing, we gain access to the deeper reality that we carry within ourselves. And condescension evaporates. Intimidated by evaporates. That's just not part of this inner light journey. So, see the impulse? What do you do? You breathe and let go. You breathe and let go. And so in Dwelling Divine, deeper in, further on, may our journeys be. Amen. So if you would, prepare your offerings. We all give online now. We go to the donate button at the top of our website. And when you go there, you will see lots of options, lots of ways that you can give. Uh, if you are here in Raleigh, if you are far away, we invite you to take an ownership, an ownership stake in the community. And remember, as we say all the time, there is good return when we invest in community. We take our time and our energy and our love and our dollars and we give to the community. Well, here's what the community does with those resources. Takes them, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in the form of the community in which we thrive. Good return on our investment. Uh, so donate online at the website. So in a minute, we're going to dismiss you all on the live stream. We're going to do what are you thinking here. And what we hope is that you will do the what are you thinking on Zoom. You can find the link to that uh, on the front page of our website. It's a great way to connect with people. It's a great way to be on a shared spiritual journey. The Zoom link is on our website. You can find it under events and news. And if you have stayed in tu tuned in this long, we're going to trust you with the password. You ready? <laughs> Here it is. The password is 1417. 1417. Do not be a troll. It is 1417. All right. Well, if you would, please put your hand on your heart as we dismiss those folks. And remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. <clears throat> that means that love is within us and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. They are within us because the divine breath is in us. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to share what's in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair our world, to heal our world. Amen. God bless you all. We are dismissed. You are dismissed. We are not. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you